The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, it's a special episode. I love special episodes. They're the most fun. Well, this is the first of four special episodes covering the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. That's awesome. I was there for about 22 hours, in which time I saw no films. Well, uh, don't worry about it. I was there for a lot longer and saw a lot of movies and stuff, and you can ask me questions about it. That's great. I love interviewing people, and I already know you a lot, but I can interview you about something I don't already know about. That's awesome. We can do that four times. We will do it four times. All right. All right. So, so Ben, what's your first question for me? <laughs> <laughs> this is a great interview. Off to a great start. Uh, okay. Well, why don't, why don't we actually do an overview of like what this episode should be about? This episode, uh, we're calling it personal picks. These are like personal favorites, things that uh, myself, our producer, Alana, and of course you... Uh, thought was the best thing about Sundance. And I know you thought at least one thing was the best thing about Sundance. Well, that's true. And we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. And then you can interview me a little bit about it. But um, uh, before we even get into it, Sundance is about the art. But let's let's get the commerce out of the way first. Like, what were some of the biggest buyers of the at, at the festival this year? Well, uh, Amazon was huge. Amazon was the biggest buyer of movies at the festival. But uh, Warner Brothers and some other companies uh, did very well. And we will definitely get into that in our next episode. So, I mean, like, ha- have the buyers all switched? Like, are, are we now living in kind of a the streamers are, are the huge buyers at Sundance and it's not, stuff isn't being bought for theatrical distribution at all? No, that's not true. Uh, they, some of the traditional players are still buying stuff. But, yes, the, the streaming, the dot-coms, if you will, uh, they've come in in a big way. And uh, this Netflix thing, I think it's going to stick around. I think I don't, it's going to be around for a minute. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think it's, uh, you know, some certain individuals or corporations or uh, foreign governments have swooped into Hollywood at various times saying like we're going to make a big big you know mark on the map here Uh, Netflix is really going to do it a lot of those people who come in they kind of breeze out you know maybe a few years later but Netflix is uh, yeah they just keep keep upping their game and uh, and the Amazon and the rest of them so Ilya uh, one of the films you saw at Sundance this year is The Sound of Silence there's a lot of sibilance in that last sentence. There is. The Sound of Silence. Tell me about The Sound of Silence. Well, it's it's my pick, actually, for favorite of Sundance. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, there was some very popular stuff. Uh, this one, I think, was also popular, but maybe didn't get the attention-grabbing headlines of, of some of the others. Uh, Sound of Silence. It wasn't a documentary about Michael Jackson. It, it wasn't, no. That was, that was already going to be on HBO. Or The Satanic Temple. So. <laughs> We're going to get to that, too. Uh, but... Uh, no, no. This movie stars uh, Peter Sarsgaard and Rashida Jones, mm-hmm. and it is uh, lovely and quirky and beautiful, and it's really not like something you've seen before. It, it in some ways, is, but really, it's not. So I don't want to dive too deep right now because uh, you're about to hear the interview that I did with the director, which is Michael Tybersky, and he really, really does a masterful job of getting to the heart of things through sound. And there's wonderful, wonderful little moments of sound in there. And I think it makes us all pay really close attention, which I'm sure was his intention, to the sounds all around us. Sound, the perfect topic for the Cinematography Podcast. Perfect. Here (laughs) is your interview 
with Michael Tyberski. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So this is Ilya with the Cinematography Podcast, and I am sitting down with Michael Tyberski, who is the director and writer, co-writer of the feature film The Sound of Silence, which has just had its premiere at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Michael, this is a strikingly visual movie, even though I would say ostensibly it's all about sound. And the sound is wonderful. And the sound and the visuals sort of play together. Can you tell me a little bit about what your inspiration was for this project? Uh, where, where does this come from? Where, w- what part of you ended up on the screen? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so many things, I suppose. Hard to narrow down to just one, but kind of a good leaping off point is always about sound. I think it's sound has always been intriguing to me, not just in movie makings, but just in, in, in general. It's this it's this tool that, um, you know, is, is used uh, in motion pictures and I think not always uh, to its maximum potential. I was thinking recently I took a when I was in film school, one of our first projects hands on was um, uh, before making a uh, like uh, before shooting uh, on film or video, they gave us a, an audio recorder to um, walk around with and make kind of an audio documentary just with sounds. And I, I think I ironically uh, didn't do well in that assignment. Uh, I think that, that the, it was maybe looking for something more experimental. And uh, since then, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about that. But it's um, I think it definitely piqued my interest into how much story you can tell with just sound. Um, early on, and that's that that that's that's always been intriguing. But I suppose I also I grew up in a in, in outside of New York um, in the country, and uh, having lived in a place like New York City, an urban environment for the last decade now, it's uh, I can't help but think about sound all the time. It's um, it's all around us. It's it's inherent to living in the city, and th- that was that was an interesting kind of subject matter to talk about in a movie and then my friend uh, who I co-wrote this with Ben Neighbors came to me years ago with this idea of this character uh, that he called the house tuner uh, you know whose practice it was to adjust people's sounds in their homes uh, to adjust their emotions so to speak and you know I think my interest in sound and this character who deals with sound suddenly became a good conduit to tell a story with and uh, there was a lot of uh, opportunities for this kind of unique sound perspective that was really exciting to me. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I suppose sound is a good good place to, to talk about. All right. Well, let's uh, for, for our listeners out there who have not been following closely with the synopses of uh, the Sundance Film Festival, and since uh, the, the movie's just uh, premiering here, could you give us a quick rundown of, of how you would describe it? Not necessarily your logline, but give us the, the, the quick overviews of, of your movie. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 a movie that um, follows a individual who is a he goes by the job title of a house tuner, but he is an individual who hears uh, things in a unique way. He has a bit of a heightened hearing, uh, so hears beyond uh, the city din in New York City where his practice is. Uh, but you know, by, his job is to go into uh, clients' homes uh, who are you know would approach him like a therapist and adjust their living spaces sonically, uh, adjusting the sounds appliances make. Interested in this idea, the the job is completely invented uh, for the movie, but the science behind it is essentially accurate. Um, If you were to hold an instrument tuner up to any sort of appliance or 
practical object in your home that's creating a buzz or a sound that would register as a, as a musical key. And it's the idea that we respond to um, music emotionally. I think we can respond to sound emotionally too, and it can have an effect um, entirely subjective. But this character believes that predominant harmonies affect people in a certain way. And he's, in essence, trying to calibrate that for the city as a whole, kind of the way a I like to think of him as a um, kind of a conductor of an orchestra, but in this case, the orchestra are all the neighborhoods and boroughs of uh, the city. I first became uh, aware of Eric Lynn when I saw Hearts Beat Loud, yeah. which uh, is, is a fantastic movie, and I, I recommend it to people all the time. Uh, I don't know where that uh, falls in the timeline, because it did come out, I think, about a year ago. And um, how long ago did you start the production of this? I know that timelines on movies can, can vary greatly. And um, uh, I'm wondering how you and Eric Lynn became uh, became acquainted. Yeah, uh, well, timeline. I've been working on this movie for several years now. We we had a short at Sundance in 2013 that was um, kind of the inspiration for this feature. Followed that same character, and you know the ensuing years were turning that into a feature length script. Uh, taking time to do that. I'm certainly very slow and methodical in my work because uh, I like to do things a certain way, and that's just how I've always done it. So during those years, I was certainly, uh, before anybody else was involved, other than Ben and I, who we were writing together, um, I was certainly thinking about the visuals of the movie and you know, knowing that I wanted to make something that I responded to, that I liked cinematically. And one of the first things I did that I think could be interesting just for as a podcast or you know, the sort of kind of like radio listeners is I sat down with, uh, when Peter Sarsgaard uh, became interested and involved, we sat down, him and I, and just recorded the entire script um, through microphones like this setup. It wasn't, um, it was a cold read, essentially. I was reading all the other characters and he was reading his roles. Uh, that turned into this kind of radio play for me that I could listen to. For so many years, you're reading a script and then suddenly I could put it, you know, in a premiere timeline and press play and I could listen to it. But then naturally having that, you know, 90 minute asset of sorts, I started putting in music, sound effects, that then that became pulling still references that I'd eventually talk about with a cinematographer. And it almost was this odd animatic in a way that I was just using as kind of a, a blueprint that I could just know that it could, it, at least this works. You know, I, I know if, if, if all else fails, I can fall back on this and I, I can feel the movie in a way and I can see it um, in this, you know, very lo-fi version. An auditory animatic, essentially. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So that that was part of the process, you know, of, I started pulling a lot of images. So uh, for about a year, I was, you know, compiling kind of my, my reference points. And I was really interested in photographing New York in the way that I grew up seeing it in the movies from an outsider or something little, not kind of an alternate New York City, I like to think about it. As uh, Gordon Willis has this great quote uh, when he photographed uh, Manhattan, that he uh, described it as romantic reality. And, uh, I just I loved that idea. Do you, do you know about? I think that happens all the time, especially in Christmas in New York movies and all kinds of stuff like this. There's this romanticized version, as particularly of Manhattan, that is just uh, you know it's like this magical place and everything kind of like lines up like uh, like kismet. So uh, and uh, I I think that. I think that, and this is just me as an outsider, having just just watched your movie. There, there's an element of that that com- that comes into your movie, but I, I won't say it's on the it's on the nose. It definitely happens sonically, though, because your movie plays with sounds and all kinds of different sounds in different ways and harmonizing or disharmonizing. And uh, 
I think it's the soundscape that you created in this uh, meshes so well with the, with your visuals. I, I kind of want to wonder because usually sound is almost the afterthought. Sound is like, um, hey, we have this beautiful movie. We made this movie. Now we have to put the sound in to, to match it. Yours felt so intentional. I was wondering if that happened much earlier in the process, if you were figuring out your sounds and trying to match visuals, or if it was the traditional process of, you know, sound almost as the afterthought or sound, you know, we, we, we created the movie visually, now we're creating it sonically. Or did you, um, tell me about that process. Yeah, certainly we were thinking about sound from the beginning. Um, and when uh, Eric Lynn and I were discussing kind of the look of the movie, we were thinking, you know, we wanted to tell the movie from Peter's perspective, from, from the main character's um, not only um, visual point of view, but his sonic uh, perspective as well. So we knew that whenever we showed New York City in these kind of like big sweeping grand shots that you've seen a lot of times, we wanted to, in, this, in the sound mix, kind of isolate some specific or more nuanced noise that's below the cacophony in a, in a way. We felt that that was a unique approach to kind of turning, you know, tur- turning that um, thing that you've seen a thousand times on its head a little bit. And, you know, and, I, and layered with the score as well, because you've got a score, you've got a, right. like, like a, um, a, a room tone mm-hmm. or a cityscape mm-hmm. uh, a tone, for lack of a better term. And then I really appreciated how much... Um, I think there's a scene where someone is like throwing Chinese food into like a, a styrofoam container mm-hmm. and you can hear that noise come through the din. Yeah. And uh, I, I know that I know that was completely intentional and, and wonderful. And now all of our listeners get to hear the phone in the background. So for, <laughs> it's <laughs> perfect. You know, it's t- talking about sound while having sound interruptions. Yeah, I, is it's, it's, I think that's uh, we couldn't have asked for better. So, so uh, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I, I no, no, that, that's a, the, like on that certain, uh, you know, on that specific detail that you talked about, I owe a lot of that my my sound design. Uh, wanted to go a step further, and they tuned all of those sound effects. This is super, super nerdy, but and, but like uh, any you, audio, you're in good company. <laughs> Our podcast is filled with nerds. So we, it's, we, it's we we wanted to make uh, you know someone with absolute pitch essentially could could understand it. That that sounded like a C in that moment, and you know you can do a lot of things with 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 audio tools to you know record the source material and then tune that to the way you wanted to. Um, so we liked kind of you know having that extra layer to these. Um, we call them these like little city symphonies. But when Eric and I were talking about the look of the film, we always referred to sound as this kind of the character. And it's you know when you make a movie, you're really not getting to sound until later in the process. So we were always kind of l- leaving room for that character to appear. And ways we, we did that visually were you know um, we talked a lot about negative space and having um, Peter or whoever he was talking to isolated in the frame, not using you know over the shoulders or dirty frames to just show also you know he's a character who is fixing other people but is his own way isolated and and lonely so that helps you know isolate him quite you know visually in in the frame um, and left room for us to create that you know sonic atmosphere around him yeah uh, there's um, some really wonderful use of color and I think primarily in Peter's home his uh, bomb shelter a home apartment it it seems to be and almost with rare exception anywhere else sort of in the world that you've created like a warm safe place like this is his haven and uh, and forgive me if I'm reading too much into this but it's uh, I feel like the rest of the world on the outside his even like his his wardrobe design he seems very like warm and earth tones and sort of uh, in in his space but the world outside of him is a little bit harsher a little bit cooler it doesn't have the same sort of saturation a lot of the time can you can you was it, is this just me you know mentally masturbating here about your color palette or was there some intention did you guys go down this path uh, what, what am, am I crazy no oh, gosh yeah no I'm 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 glad uh, that's 
that's resonating and coming through. I mean, that was, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm certainly um, someone who, when I, when I write a script, I, I write a script that I'm going to direct. And, you know, even though you're, you're not supposed to write long descriptions, the description of Peter's home, the former Cold War era fallout shelter, uh, was very specific and specifically about being um, cozy uh, and uh, having warm Persian rugs and uh, lamps that, you know, make the space, yeah, feel like a womb in a way. And it's, you know, he's someone who lives there to be isolated because, you know, the sound haunts him in a way. It's his, his, his biggest um, power is his flaw at, this, at the same time. And we really liked that irony and showing that contrast. And then the other thing, you know, um, beyond New York being cold, I really wanted to photograph this movie. Um, we shot in between March and April in New York. And so you're right kind of on the towing the line between the spring bloom that happens when a lot of movies shoot in New York is lush, kind of beautiful green Central Park. But uh, I really wanted to show uh, Central Park uh, dead, essentially. And it, a big reference point was um, the Jonathan Glazer film Birth. Um, everyone loves how Harry Savita shot that, but it was something I was pulling up every day. It's like, how did they do this? And it's like, I, th- I think the biggest kind of presence in that movie in New York is the way, um, and uh, hopefully we translate it a little bit in our movie, is when you see these uh, trees in Central Park without tre- without leaves, they look like these big black veins up against the sky. So it has this kind of ominous present in this, um, you know, the city that you know, but it helped um, kind of disguise and show that kind of, that alternate New York that I was talking about earlier too, in a way. Uh, you, you chose, and, and here we're going down into the, the geeky place a little bit here, mm-hmm. uh, we, you chose the uh, Univisium aspect ratio of 2 to 1. So it's a lovely aspect ratio. I've talked about it many times on, on this podcast. Uh, where, where did that, where did that, how did that come to be? Yeah, uh, well, it's something I, I gave a lot of thought to. I think, you know, I, I've made a lot of short films in, 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 my, in my small career, and um, it's, uh, I, I think I've become very comfortable shooting you know, in 169, which is essentially 185. And I knew when I made my first feature that I, I wanted to go a little, little bit wider, but I think I realized early on that I, I was working so much out of my comfort zone and things I knew. I wanted to work with a lot of new collaborators on this movie. I set up a, a few kind of uh, benchmark challenges for myself. And I knew that one of the things that I didn't want to sacrifice was working with such an unknown as much as, you know, uh, 2351 is uh, one of, I think, the aspect ratio for motion pictures. And it, it's something I, I, I wasn't quite comfortable jumping into right away, knowing how much was on the line. But at the same time, I think the, the bigger pull for not going that wide was this kind of, that naturalism I was trying to pull off. We looked at um, one film that I like to use at a reference point when we were kind of prepping the film was Being John Malkovich. And they, they shot... Um, uh, not not two to one, but it was one thing that I think worked about that movie is you have a you know a sci-fi movie essentially in a naturalistic environment. But I think what helps do that is it almost has like a documentary feel if you don't go into full scope. You know that suddenly creates such an artifice on the lens, and you're really in a movie that way. Uh, but what I liked about two to one, it's kind of right at, right in the middle, and I mean you know that's why uh, it was essentially invented uh, for that purpose. And uh, I, I think it was striking when we were doing tests and it just, uh, Eric, uh, who I had met, um, you know, while we were, uh, you know, getting ready for the movie had just shot Hearts Beat Loud and as well and had really good experience. And I think that was kind of like what sealed the deal is like, let's go in and, you know, do this. Um, you're very comfortable in that aspect ratio. It's, it's so similar to what I've been doing, but it's a little, it's like a baby step to get a little bit wider, but, um. It became perfect for us also, you know, to shoot. We had a lot of interiors in the movie, and it gives a little bit more width uh, to, you know, you can frame things a little bit more practically um, in small environments when you are that much wider. 
I, I realize I, I derailed the question earlier, but how did you and Eric get connected? How did that uh, come about? Uh, I actually met him through one of my producers, Mike Brawl, uh, who had worked with him in the past, and I had seen a lot of Eric's work over the year. He's one of these guys uh, in New York who's kind of done everything, and uh, I, I don't think I could, you know, specifically nail down a specific Eric Lynn work, uh, you know, look, but I think that's what's great about him. He's very versatile. You know, I think we first met, and he had read the script, and uh, I really wanted to meet with him, and we were talking about Ozu all of a sudden, and I was like, okay, this th- this guy, I think, you know, kind of gets kind of the, the world that I want to build, and I know he's um, he's very serious and very detail-oriented, and I think we, we just uh, had, like, a shorthand right away in terms of movie references and what we wanted to do with this movie to make it really look special and he became a great collaborator in the process talk a little bit about uh, you've got a great cast you've got uh, peter sarsgaard and uh, rashida jones uh, most notably uh, as the as the leads in this project how did you um how did your your cast come to how did how did it all come together uh, well, it all started with, um, you know, I knew the, f- the the key role was finding the house tuner. And um, it's, uh, Peter is someone I wanted to work with always. I mean, he's he's kind of a, a dream actor to me. He's, uh, I, I describe him as a chameleon of sorts. He can disappear into so many different roles. Um, and I think the, the film that I seriously, as, as we were in the writing process, I saw Michael Amareta's uh, Experimenter, where he plays a scientist of sorts, much different sort of scientist, much different sort of film, but I, it, it was a different sort of role than I had seen him in, in the past, and I, I think it piqued my interest in, okay, well, here's how he looks in a blazer, here's, uh, you know, uh, here's how he looks kind of like talking about science, and that kind of stuck in my head, and I, I also think Peter has one of the most unique uh, voices in, 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 in movies, right? now uh, and it's infectious and I, I just list, love listening to his voice so like knowing that I was making a movie about sound where I'm going to be hearing him a lot that was a nice kind of leaping off point but I um, I was able to get him the script uh, through we had mutual uh, connections at anonymous content and I wrote him a long love letter of sorts and I was amazed he read the script probably within 48 hours of getting it to him and we were sitting down for lunch the next week I was uh, admittedly uh, you know kind of intimidated to meet Peter but I, I think one thing that I likened to right away was within 30 seconds he is such a warm presence and inviting it's much different from a lot of the kind of characters he gets cast in uh, which I think it just speaks to his ability so much and we talked about music and uh, he plays a lot of musical instruments and sound his own interest in sound and I knew right away that you know like this was going to work and we just hit it off and um, he was attached to the movie about a year before we physically started making it so he was a real champion to kind of make all the other pieces uh, fall in line and attract more cast and get more people interested which is great you know and it's how you got to do it uh and Rashida was next uh she was on the top of the list that my casting director Rory Bergman got me and I had never really seen Rashida at that point playing anything but comedy she's obviously I know her from her comedic talents and which I think is her forte and I did a deep dive into her work and realized that, yeah, there is a lot more uh, to her, which I, I think is incredible. And, you know, she's also a really talented writer and filmmaker in her own right. And uh, when we uh, met and talked, I could just uh, know, I could know right, tell right away she was going to be a great collaborator and uh, really became someone who helped evolve uh, scenes on set in a, in a really natural way and uh, jived really well with Peter. So that was really um, a great kind of pairing. And then 
uh, my, my, I think my next on my list was Austin Pendleton, who uh, is one of my favorite act character actors, and uh, yeah, he's really great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that guy. Uh, he had, had coincidentally, you know, worked with Peter in the past. Uh, he's you know in, in theater in New York, and um, it just you know started like building this family very slowly. And um, Tony Revolori came on, uh, who I think everyone fell in love with in the Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, I just found him to be such a intelligent thoughtful young actor who is just very serious we talked a lot when we first met about um the relationship between john gazelle and gene hackman in the conversation where they kind of you know similarly work in this kind of sound lab but you know have a interesting dynamic and i i saw uh, tony as kind of a kindred spirit to the john gazelle character in a way the the role he plays in our film uh you know and then you just you build and build it, it seems like a really wonderful and very cerebral cast that you have. You have like you know, all these really very talented, really fantastic people together, and you have them all. You have them all rowing the boat in the same direction, uh, and I, I, get, I have to give you a lot of credit for that as as the director because. Um, I, I spent decades working on sets and uh, worked on a lot of productions, and it's not always the case. Even if you think you've got the perfect the perfect cast, it, sometimes you get people who kind of want to go off in left field and want to do their own thing, but uh, you really had everyone, it felt like, very unified going through it together. Everyone really felt, to me, the same tone. i got to say that I want to talk about the score. Uh, the score, which ordinarily, I think, is more of an underlying note for, uh, you know, dramas or comedies or anything else. And of course, it can be so heavy handed, it can really swell and really draw attention to itself when it's done poorly. Your score interacts with the rest of your sound design so well. And it, to me, it, it like there's big chunks of the movie, which is just there's no dialogue, it's just sound and score. And it never feels that it never feels heavy handed. It always feels like it just blends so smoothly. And, and I, I'm sure that it, that some of that is coming after the fact, after you have the visuals, but it, it, it to me, it's like, it's a, it's a marriage and I'm sorry, this is a giant gushy thing right here. So uh, I did flattery uh, never, but, uh, wrong. but I'll tell you, it's like, uh, t- talk about how, the, how the score came around and working with your composer and the original music that, that goes with all this. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing, you know, I, I, I was leaving score kind of to, I, I wanted that to come organically and I was very mercurial admittedly in the process of kind of what, um, what direction I wanted to go with it. And I had the opportunity, I met Will Bates, uh, who's our composer, uh, also about a year before we made the movie. And um, we were talking about, I loved, he had done this score for Alex Gibney's doc, Going Clear About Scientology, and uh, had used the theremin as pr- pr- predominantly in, the, in, in, in that score. And, and I, you got some theremin in yours, too. We actually have an <laughs> instrument called uh, the... the uh, the the uh, the the uh, the Martinat, which Whoa. is theremin-like, it's around. Mm-hmm. It was invented around the same time, and is inspired by. But this early kind of electronic uh, instrument sound was was interesting. It just felt kind of odd enough to fit our world and to fit Peter as we're kind of looking. You know, as much as the sound design is told from Peter's perspective, we wanted the score to be kind of this um, omnipresent narrator in a way, like the, the Greek choir kind of watching Peter and it's uh, kind of commenting as the audience would kind of on his uh, methodology and his, his oddities. But one thing that happened during, um, in the middle of our edit actually, when we, 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 I was kind of pushing score, pushing score off, is I got invited uh, via the Sundance Institute out to this lab that they hold at Skywalker Ranch called the um, uh, Film Music and Sound Lab, where they paired me with a composer fellow and also a sound designer at Skywalker to really kind of experiment at a, at a place in the middle of our edit, which was such a luxury, um, to where I would be going later. 
And uh, one thing that I learned from there and was I wanted to emulate in our movie is being able to literally work with a composer in one room and then walk across the hallway and be working with a sound designer is if you can design it that way, if you have that ability, uh, can do so much. And I knew that when we got to that stage on this movie that I really wanted to blend those together as much as possible. And even though uh, Will Bates was working on the West Coast and we were uh, mixing uh, at a place called Harbor in New York City, we uh, were always in dialogue together and you know my sound designers are really interested in you know tuning their you know all of the things they were doing to Will's music and we were able to pass things back and forth and to really kind of emulate that process the way I wanted to um, and I think speaks a lot to um, you know how that's uh, coming across in in the movie is that the, the pairing and the dance between um, you know these departments that usually work separately together um, just because of the way that these things have to be made um, but we tried to do that as much as possible and um, it was really um, I think crucial to, um, to to have that come across speaking of sound just because you know I, I, I like that people are listening to this with headphones uh, I, I just dug deep and you know not all these things are are in the film, but we we did a lot of uh, research, Ben Neighbors and I, uh, when we were obviously writing the movie, and we just you can go down so many rabbit holes of interesting sound phenomena and and, and that sort of thing. And you know, I, I like think that you you know in the Middle Ages, the uh, the Catholic Church banned uh, certain notes from being uh, played, uh, something called like the, the devil's tritone, um, and. It's, I liked that, you know, uh, 500 years ago, we were already kind of like thinking about how our emotions essentially are reacting to sound. And then you look at um, NASA uh, successfully measured what a black hole sounds like. I believe it registered as a B flat. Uh, that, that was really interesting to me. Also, you know, bringing a practical sound onto this Western music, musical scale. And then, you know, what does make it into the film, uh, is the, w- w- which, which is a really intriguing subject matter for me, is at the turn of the century, there was this uh, commission that the Department of Health set up, the Noise Abatement Commission, to measure uh, the city din. And uh, they, they didn't have any success uh, in solving that problem. It's only gotten worse. But uh, I, I just I love that in New York we've constantly been thinking about how to solve the sound problem, but haven't made any progress. And then lastly, another kind of fun anecdote is the, uh, the composer John Cage has this story that he used to tell where he went into an anechoic chamber and uh, you know this room that's supposed to be devoid of sound and uh, yeah I've been in there and it is uh, truly unsettling because you start to hear like the sound of your own heartbeat and like the blood rushing through your veins and exactly all kinds of, like, yeah. weird sounds when you swallow you never heard before so, yeah. yeah so it, and that's what exactly his experience he walked out and talked to the sound engineer and he's like I still hold her noise and that's what he heard you know and so I like this this theme that even in complete silence you can't escape yourself and I think that's a running motif uh, certainly for our character in this movie Michael thank you so much for being on the show it, it's it's really been been fantastic oh my pleasure thanks for having me again So that was Michael Tybersky, the director of The Sound of Silence. Maybe when that comes out, we can uh, have the cinematographer on. Who's who's the cinematographer on? I didn't even ask you. It's uh, Eric Lynn, who uh, has done a lot of fantastic work. And boy, he'd be great to have on the podcast. I'd love to get him. Eric Lynn, if you're in the sound of our voice, call us. That's right. Call me. You up?
<laughs> All right. So the next film that we want to talk uh, to you about is a movie called The Farewell. Tell me about The Farewell. The Farewell is uh, Alana Cody's pick. Uh, she actually does this interview. This is her interview. Uh, All right. De- debut. We're, yeah, I know. And we're so breaking up. Yeah. They, not, we, we don't have to have to, you know, you don't have to do them all. I don't have to do them all. Now we have someone else who can do some. All so. right. Well, I mean, she's she's probably conducted more interviews than both of us put together in her life. But yeah, e- easily. <laughs> so The Farewell is by Lulu Wong, who, of course, is very famous for her work with uh, This American Life. Awesome. And this stars, this movie stars Aquafina, and it's about uh, her family conspiring to hide her grandmother's terminal cancer diagnosis from her. And, and this one got picked up at Sundance, right? It did. A24 picked it up for American distribution. And uh, A24 really releases some very interesting films. Yeah, uh, it's um, they're a powerhouse. I'll tell you that uh, they, they've come in and... I com- I think completely have rewritten the landscape of indie distribution, and you know it's it's I don't say that lightly because they've done very controversial but very artistic and very artistically successful movies. A twenty four, Annapurna. There's a few companies out there that are really killing it right now, but A twenty four is like, yeah, it's it's hard to find a miss amongst their amongst their stable. You always wonder like in, when when the Weinstein company kind of got you know disappeared into their own vacuum of hateful awfulness yeah uh like who would who would be there but like a24 has already been around for years that's right and and boy they have not missed a beat so without further ado here is the farewell i'm alana cody with the cinematography podcast and i'm sitting down with lulu wong to talk to her about her new movie the farewell so lulu if you could tell us a little bit about your movie the farewell Yeah, the film is about a Chinese-American woman who goes back to China to uh, say goodbye to her grandmother, essentially, because her grandmother has been diagnosed with um, stage 4 lung cancer, and the doctor's given her three months to live. The only thing is that um, her grandmother doesn't know that she has this illness, and the family has decided not to tell her. And so they're all returning to China under the ruse of a wedding for Billy, the main character for her cousin from Japan. And so they're using this wedding as a way to say goodbye to Nai Nai, Grandma, without making her suspicious. The beginning of this story, The Farewell, um, I know that you first had it on This American Life. I personally am a huge fan, and I remember hearing it when it was on. So um, tell me how, when you had, like, how that then got developed into a larger thing with visuals. Yeah, um, when the episode aired... Um, I I would say within like 48 hours, Chris White's tweeted at me, and then we had lunch a couple days later, and Peter Seraf from Big Beach also emailed, and a number of other producers also reached out, and so I took a bunch of meetings, and ultimately knew that I wanted to work with people who were going to support my voice and allow me to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it, which meant also uh, keeping the authenticity of the casting and the language. And so both uh, Depth of Field and Big Beach are such uh, strong supporters of independent filmmakers and, and you know, keeping things in the director's vision that it was clear to me that I would work with them and throughout the entire process um, they were just nothing but supportive of um, making sure that you know I was able to do this film the way that I wanted to great and so did you always want to be a filmmaker and be prior to doing this American Life 
oh yes actually i made my first feature in 2014 mm-hmm. um and it's called posthumous it stars jack houston and brit marling we shot it in berlin it's out on hulu right now still yeah and so i've, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker and this situation actually happened to me my grandmother getting ill and everything happened while I was editing my first feature in Berlin and my first feature was this like screwball romantic comedy because I love screwball setups and I love the comedy um, of like a screwball setup and I, I started to realize you know there's a lot of screwball uh, situations in my real life and um, or at least that's the way I see them um, and so when this happened I knew immediately that it should be a film but I didn't want to compromise on my vision of how to make it and that's why it took such a long time to find the right partners right so how long did it take from like when you first had did the idea to the execution the first time I had the idea was in 2013 and I just had written a short story about about this uh, experience and I, I did that because there were so many specific moments that felt that just I, I I knew I had to get on paper before I forgot them, and because I was told time and time again that this story would be very difficult to get financed, and who was the market for it, and all of this stuff, I just never thought that I would ever get to make it as a film. So then, in it, I made a short film after my first feature to just you know make something a little bit darker and go back to trying to say okay what is it what what else do I want to say you know what is it what is my voice as a filmmaker what are the types of stories that I want to tell and that short is called touch and it played at a bunch of film festivals and a producer from this American life came and we you know I think uh recorded the story in 2016 so it was probably less than three years but then the movie got set up that same year at the end of 2016 Oh, okay, great. That's good. So what was the difference from translating it as like a radio story to turning it into like a visual story? Because the visuals are very, really, it's shot very well. And it looks like you worked really closely with your DP. So if you want to talk about that. Yeah, my cinematographer, Ana Franquesa Solano, uh, she's from Barcelona, but she's lived in New York for many, many years. We worked very closely and um, I, I had such a specific vision of how I wanted to shoot the film. I knew that I wanted the shots to be quite composed. I knew that I there's a performative element to the situation with the family right they're performing their emotions and so I wanted to have a staginess to the cinematography and I searched for a really long time for the right DP and Anna was non-union and she kind of came across about like two weeks before I had to leave for China for prep Mm-hmm. We still didn't have a DP, and um, I had interviewed all these other people, and then I saw her work and just immediately knew that she would be the right person, and I just begged and begged and begged her to, to come, and we had to work out union stuff and all of this, but yeah, we had a really close collaboration, you know, because again... Uh, there's a, 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 a naturalism in the characters and the dynamics of the family, but I wanted the cinematography, the framing, the composition to be a bit more stylized. And the juxtaposition of that 
I think is what allowed me to explore humor in the story that was not broad comedy. It wasn't a comedy where I had to say to the actor, hey, this is supposed to be funny, so be funny. Like I allowed the actors to just be real Mm -hmm. and be in the moment and they themselves don't know that they're in a comedy, which is often the case, I think, in real life. Like when we're in a very dramatic situation, we just feel like it's a melodrama and you know and so the camera serves as this sort of objective camera that is able to look uh at these characters and look at the situation and present the humor great and so when you were selecting the locations um you were it looked like you were pretty specific to kind of make them seem humorous like i'm thinking in the film there's a scene where they're doing the wedding photography Mm And um, so how difficult was it to shoot in China and how hard was it to find your specific locations for the mood that you were trying to invoke? Yeah, I would say that the locations were, you know, challenging, but not because of China. Actually, China made the scouting easy, the inspiration, I would say, for locations very easy because those wedding studios exist all over China. That's like a very big industry is wedding photography. And there's an absurdity to that, the over the topness of the wedding industry, definitely in America too, but in China, you know, it's a much bigger thing uh, because you have so much family and you have to show like the demonstration of it. Again, the performative nature of these very personal, you know, emotions or things is a big part of the Chinese culture. And so, all of the locations were inspired by real locations, if not the real locations themselves. And so there's a mixture of real locations. Like, for example, the cemetery is the cemetery where my grandfather's actually buried. The gravestone where we shot is my grandfather's gravestone um, with his picture on it. And then with uh, Nine Eyes Apartment, we originally had thought about potentially shooting in Nine Eyes' real apartment, but it became this whole big drama of like, okay, this lady has stage four lung cancer, doesn't know, doesn't know about the premise of the movie, and now you're gonna like move her out of her house uh, to live in like a, a hotel or, you know, a condo and, and like bring a crew. Like it just got to be too much. And the only reason we even considered it was because she kept insisting. And and my DP, we went, went over there to make dumplings, and she's like, this is the best apartment we've ever seen out of all the places we scouted. It's got all these, like, layers. And uh, and so I was like, oh, God, oh, my God. And so my grandma insisted, and Anna was like, well, I love it, but I don't want to, you know, cross any boundaries. And so I ultimately had to say, you know what, like, this is a great inspiration. Let's try to find something similar, which was very, very difficult for that location specifically because apartments in that region of China are very, very small. And her apartment, Nai Nai's apartment, is a little bit bigger than the normal apartment because she was in the communist army. And so the housing they they provided for her is slightly better than, you know, middle class it's also from a particular era and so that what it meant we had to find that to to get the right feeling so that took quite some time Mm -hmm. cool and how did Aquafina get involved yeah so as we were casting uh I had done a bunch of auditions and one of the producers at Big Beach had heard about Aquafina and said what about Aquafina and I was like didn't she do that video, My Vag? Uh, like, and also, isn't she Korean? And so I was sort of like, you know, 
I had known her as an influencer, as like you yeah. know somebody who had um, these YouTube videos, and so it wasn't my first instinct to just cast her. And I looked up some of the comedy that work that she'd done, and um, I, I'll admit I was skeptical. And uh, then I started to research a little more, and. Um, found out that she was half Chinese and she and I met up for a coffee and she told me that she was raised by her Chinese grandmother on her father's side so the story was very personal to her she'd read the script and loved it and just said that she had such a deep personal connection to it and really really wanted to do it so then she sent in an audition tape and when I watched the audition tape I was blown away and I it actually made me cry and I knew right then that she was the one and I I knew that I could work with her on the language stuff but her the rawness of her emotions um it was so um she had such access to it and I could just feel that she had that access that even without professional you know acting training or without having done any dramatic acting in the past just knowing and, and being able to feel that she had that access to those emotions because of her own relationship with her grandmother made her such a valuable asset to the project. Great. Now, so do, do, you, do you find it a little bit more freeing maybe to make it more of a fictionalized version of your real life story or was it just different? You know, I think that the fictionalized version was actually more challenging than This American Life. Mm-hmm. I think there's a quote that's like, you know, the only difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to be credible. And when working on This American Life, we had fact checkers and I had this team of journalists who were helping to guide me and doing the research and doing the interviews. And so it was a very um, smooth process. And with making a film, there's so many decisions to make in 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 terms of like how do I make this feel authentic and believable and how far can I go like okay we're gonna use actors but you know what kind of actors and are they gonna feel real and uh in terms of everybody comes from different places in the world and um are their accents gonna feel real like Diana Lin is not actually Chinese American she's uh, Chinese Australian and so is that going to influence that and I wanted the movie to be as authentic as possible um, in both languages Um, not even because I'm like targeting the Chinese audience and I or any that thing like that but I just think for the overall texture of the film to try to stay as true as possible so you know, and then I cast my little Nai Nai. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're talking about that. My yeah. great aunt to mm-hmm. play herself. And that was an idea I had from the beginning because I just love her. She's so charming. And also, it was important for me to include her in the process because she was the one who instigated the lie. She's the one who had to shoulder the burden all of these years of taking care of uh, her sister, my grandmother, because we all live abroad. She was the one who got the news alone in the doctor's office and then had to decide, do I tell my sister? How do I tell the family? You know, and um, I wanted to honor her perspective in the story. And so I, I just thought, you know, if I, if I have her in the movie somehow, it'll help maintain the authenticity. 
and so initially I thought, well, what if she plays Nina, her sister? And so I did put her on tape and quickly realized like she's not a very good quote unquote actor in that way, particularly when it's of her sister, because then she just starts laughing and she's like, oh, how does she do it? And she would just giggle and, you know, almost like try to do an imitation. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I so then kind of put aside the idea of casting her for a long time. But we were nearing the start of production. I still hadn't found either Nai or Little Nai And we were like scouring the parks every morning and just like looking for non-actors. And I was like, <laughs> if we're going to cast a non-actor, let me just talk to Little Nai again and see. And so this time I said, what, what if we just had her play herself? Like, what would that look like? And we spent three hours in a room and the casting, uh, one of our casting assistants was there with a camera. But I said, let's not even film this. Let me just talk. Let's just talk. So I just really talked to her and got her in that place where she was like putting herself back in that moment of hearing, getting that devastating news. And then, you know, what, what did it feel like to walk down that hallway Right. And then tell, knowing that you have to lie to your sister. And so, you know, we were in an apartment and just I had her walk from one end of the room to the other and back and back and back. And she walked and walked and walked, remembering, remembering, remembering. And then I was like, great, there, now. And then we did the scene. And it was just like everybody was blown away. The producers were there. We did film that and I sent that to them and they were just like, oh, my God. And yeah, she was really good. Yeah. I would not have known that until you said something about it that that was she was not an actor, that she was really your aunt. Yeah. So. Yeah. My favorite scene in the movie was um, the group family dinner at Nai Nai's house after everyone finds out. So I was I was curious though because that was kind of screwball, kind of you know sad and funny at the same time. But so what was that a part of what really happened for to you in your personal story? You know, I, it's hard for me to even remember now, like, what specifically moments in the movie were totally real and what were, you know, I think I knew that I, food is a big part, and so every scene revolves around a dinner table or a breakfast table or whatever. So I was just trying to say, okay, well, what are all these, they're, they're obviously going to eat a lot together, but each of these eating scenes has to mean something different, and and what is the significance of each of these meals as opposed to you know people just talking and so so much of the movie is about the things that are not spoken and so we shot that scene in a way also where everybody's at the table but everybody's isolated Mm -hmm. and you know so you know we have these over the shoulders and so like everyone's alone in the frame and everyone you you see the feelings and they're saying one thing but feeling something else and yeah I, I I love that scene as well like I was very excited to start editing it because I think crafting those moments of awkwardness and like being just like a little bit too long mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah that's what really made it work definitely yeah um I guess my final question really would be um now that your nine has lived like it was six years now past mm-hmm. her prognosis mm-hmm. how does that make you feel do you think you've had sort of a change of heart about maybe that was a wise decision that she doesn't know that she has cancer mm-hmm. yeah it's hard not to believe that that had played a role like of uh, the family not telling her um played a role in her living much longer than the doctor diagnosed but of course i've talked to other people whose family did the same thing and their uh you know loved one didn't 
live much longer and so we don't have a time machine we can't go back and say if we made a different choice how would that go I, I I don't know I think it's a very complicated thing where I I don't know if that had an effect but I certainly don't want to test it yeah you know and that's why I'm not that's why it's hard for me to know whether or not she should see the film on one hand if we buy this idea that joy is a kind of medicine then um, there's nothing that I th- would love more than to, for her to see this film and see how much we've honored her. I think it, that would bring her a lot of joy. But at the same time, what if she sees it in real and is just devastated by the fact that we've lied to her all these years? Or right. And then what if something does happen when, where she's no longer with us? And will I feel the guilt that somehow maybe like her finding out through me and through this film is what caused it? Even though she's 86, you know, and so the, there's the rational part of me that's like, no, it's not related of course not but if if somebody woke up every day and believed that jumping up and down on their left foot while tapping their nose for five minutes is good luck and they do it and then there's some positive result then are you 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 want to maintain that right because you know the the result sort of validated your belief yeah and I think that's kind of how everybody is and everyone in my family sort of has different ideas too like oh the thing that I did helped her live longer like my my uncle is like oh yeah those Japanese probiotics that we gotta keep buying them for her and we're like you know they're so expensive and he's like but what if we don't buy them for her and then she dies and you so it know becomes sort of superstitious basically. yeah exactly all right. Well, I guess that's our time. So, Lulu's, where can people find you on social media or, or find out more about the movie? I am on social media as Thumbalulu. And, uh, yeah, I think that's right. For right now, at least, that's the best place to sort of get the, you know, progress of the film. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, as things develop towards the end of Sundance, uh, there will be more information. Thank you very much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so that was Alana Cody interviewing Lulu Wong. Thank you, Alana and Lulu, for for doing that. So when you're at Sundance, I I think maybe some people who have never been to Sundance think that it's just wall-to-wall movies and all you're doing is going to movies, but really there's a whole lot more at Sundance than just movies. Far from it. There's a lot of panels. Some of them are artistic. Some of them are contemplative. Some of them are movie-related, television-related food related you you never know which food? yeah there was oh. there was there was a only thing. you would go to sundance and find a food panel oh it was it was about this is a couple of years ago but they had a by the way thing l- all about- l- listeners i'm not I- I- Ilya just loves loves food and it's kind of an ongoing thing yeah. between us because i am not a foodie and he definitely but is this, okay this was uh specifically about like farms and gardening there was a whole like documentary yeah. sort of thing they didn't oh, okay. think about sustainable farming and so that's what i say food i mean like oh. you know food agriculture <laughs> agriculture they, you never know it's a mixed bag you never know what you're going to get and this year uh there was a real great surprise uh, jackie chan popped in no and, way yeah he did and uh, jackie chan legend legendary actor director musician i mean he's 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 released albums i mean he jackie has, chan has it, yes has done it all it's it's pretty incredible i'm seriously i want to stop doing this now and just go listen to some jackie chan music well maybe we could play a clip of some jackie chan right now all right he, here it is here's some jackie chan music i must be dreaming you're too good to be true all right, and that's as much as we can use with fair use. But that's Jackie Chan, everybody. That, that's right. So, uh, so here it is. Uh, Jackie Chan came and did a panel, and he discussed a whole lot of different things. And one of the things that uh, I think a lot of the audience was surprised to learn about him is that he does uh, 
a lot of charitable work. He does, uh, you know, he did wasn't always this way. He wasn't always a, a man who liked to do charity. He didn't have a foundation, but he tells a story about uh, about how he got into doing this and what it was like to uh, change his whole life around. All right, so uh, here's uh, a bit of you uh, recording a talk back with Jackie Chan. So it's not, is it a direct, it's not a direct interview. Uh, it's not a direct interview. It's just Jackie Chan talking. He, someone else is interviewing and I'm just piggybacking off. All right, thing. so what's the first piece that we're going to hear from Jackie Chan here? Uh, the first piece is talking about becoming a charitable indiv- individual and having a, a life change. Well, and here is that clip. I'm not that good. I just ordinary people, but you make me good. I, I, I'm a wild boy when I'm young. <laughs> and, yes, I'm, when I was 20, I'm already millionaire. I'm talking about 40 years ago. And one day, I get uh, uh, my salary is a. Uh, one movie, my salary, less 500 US. When I was a child actor, was uh, 25 cents a day. When I was a stunt guy, jump over, you risk my life, was uh, 50 cents a day. When I'm becoming a super stunt guy, it's like uh, $10, less $10 US a day. When I'm becoming a star, less 500, a whole movie, suddenly overnight, half million US. I just, why? Wow. <laughs> because at that time, the internet, we don't have internet, we don't have a telephone. My movie is so successful around the world, but uh, not around the world at that time, probably in Asia. And the US, nobody know me. And, and the, the producer, movie company, nobody tell, tell you how successful you are. I just keep picking up. Then suddenly some other company come, you give me a, a hundred, they give me 200, then suddenly I get half million a movie. Wow. The, the guy like me never education, you know, like a stunt guy. As a stunt guy, everybody fighting on the street, fighting, uh, gambling, drinking. I just fo- followed the elderly, elderly. I was 16. What, whatever they go, I go. They go to gambling, I go to gambling. They go to drink, I go to drink. They do the bad things, I do bad things. They fight on the street, I fight. <laughs> Nobody teach me the right things. When you become a doing charity, then you go to the mountain, you see the children, they don't have a water. Then I buy, I bought so many water. We don't have electricity. We don't have a pseudos. Uh, it's not easy, just step by step. Wow, you have to do so many things. Like I build a school, building a school easy. Boom, I give them money, then I do some auction. I remember the auction, my socks, half million. My, my t-shirt, in the stage, I almost naked until my underwear. And the Sinjabri, the, 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 the auction guy, they, they the money, I keep my money, government some money, I built 27 school already. It's not just a school. When you're building a school, chair, table, computer, uh, medicine, Clothes, shoes. I have to buy a uniform. I call the factory. A uh, hundred uh, uniform, a hundred shoes. Then later on, they call me the size. 
Then I have to check every school, Jackie Chan school. How, how many sites? Okay, how many? Then later I call, where you send it? How I send That's a big job. But today, I'm so happy. After 30 some years, the charity, I have so many people helping me. I have so many volunteers, all my friends around the world, even the fans in Europe, fans in America, they help me to do, do the things. Today is more easy. Yeah, that's a story. <laughs> All right, so uh, what is the next clip that we have from Jackie Chan? Uh, you know, it was a real shock for him. He didn't really feel like his English was was very good when he first came to the U.S. and started uh, doing movies here. And he has a really funny experience the first time he started meeting celebrities, and he met a bunch of celebrities in one place. And, and, and here's that story. All right. <laughs> they put me in the green room. I was in the green room. Then I'm standing in the green room. Wow, I see so many big stars. <laughs> Suddenly, there's a guy, boom, in front of me. Robert William. Jackie, Jackie, big fan. I didn't even say anything. <laughs> I know what it's Okay, you walk away. You turn around and walk away. Then I just, wow. Oh. I have to translate Chinese. <laughs> oh, Robert Willie. <laughs> I, as soon as I finished, boom, there's another guy. Uh, Cartier. Sydney Cartier? Sydney Cartier. I just, wow, Sydney Cartier. Oh, Jack, you big fan of you. <laughs> I, I, I just, oh, okay. <laughs> And I said, wow, see, they are big stars. They, they don't care. Oh, they're probably American culture. I should learn that. <laughs> then I, I look at John Tobota. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> then I said, should I go say John Tobota? I said, Tobota or John? <laughs> how, how should I? No, probably John. Okay, <laughs> then I walk. He was uh, doing something. I said, John. Then he's standing up. I said, uh, big fan of you. I learned from Portier. <laughs> big, big fan of yours. They said, oh, oh, uh, John talked a lot about you. I said, John talked a lot about me? I said, ha, 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 okay, you busy, you busy. Yeah, so happy. Then he said, oh, John, John Wu. That means John Wu. Then I turn around, I see Tom Hanks. I said, Tom, big fan. <laughs> then suddenly, suddenly he said, oh, likewise. <laughs> okay. Then I turn. Well, then later on, my manager come as a uh, with a uh, uh, Quincy Jones, something like that. As, uh, the, uh, Quincy Jones want to see you. I say, okay, okay, brother, brother. I see. I say hello to Tom. Uh, Tom hands. Oh, you do? Wow, you're great. But he say something. When I say big fan, he say, I don't know what. Uh, welcome. Da, 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 da. Likewise. Do, do, do. Yes, yes, yes. Likewise. Oh, that means same. Okay. Then when I see uh, Quincy Jones, oh, big fan, I said, likewise. <laughs> All right, so what's our, uh, what's our next Jackie Chan anecdote? Uh, he received the uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar, and uh, that's... He's like, I'm not dead yet, motherfucker. <laughs> That's, that's not it at all. <laughs> but, you know, he really didn't believe it when someone named Oscar. Well, well, first of all, he never believed that he could 
win an Oscar. He uh, he always felt like that's for the Kramer versus Kramers, and his type of movie is is not that sort of thing. So here's Jackie explaining uh, all about getting the Lifetime Achievement Award. Me would never get an Oscar because my kind of movie, we are not like a purple, we are not like a Kramer versus a Kramer, we are not like a Titanic. My kind of movie, if you know, you, you know I mean, you know my movie, your father can kill my father can kill. <laughs> Fight! <laughs> and even the love story, I love you, you love me? No, not even kiss. You love me? Okay, I love you. Fight! <laughs> filming on the set, then somebody said, ah, Jackie have a call from Oscar. Ah, Oscar? <laughs> okay. I was filming, I was doing action sequence, and the, the, probably the connection with Jackie, uh, uh, there's a who's calling, and uh, there's a secret, secret uh, something. I said, ah, oh, oh, okay, Oscar, oh, okay. Even uh, uh, there's a secret, don't talk, uh, something like, uh, don't say it. We announced something Oscar. I said, oh, probably I'm going to get present Oscar again. <laughs> okay, why secret? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then after overnight, I get so many phone calls. Jackie, you get an Oscar. I said, what? I, I, I call my manager, what movie? chairman of the, the Oscar, I said, why I get the Oscar? I want to know. Then even he said, she said, strange. <laughs> I realized, oh, I've been working film, my, my film career, 58 years this year. That's awesome. That when I think of Jackie Chan, I think like the first thing I ever knew about Jackie Chan, I think one of the first movies of his I ever saw was a f film I want to say is a late 80s, maybe early 90s called Rumble in the Bronx. And there, he does a stunt in that movie uh, where he jumps from one building to another and he does it with a broken leg. And yeah. they, they made like a sock that was painted to look like his pants so that he could wear it over a leg cast while he jumped from one building to the next. And I thought about it last year when Mission Impossible Fallout came out 
and Tom Cruise like broke his ankle jumping from one building to the other and kept making the movie. All right, and now we're going to turn the tables, and it is you, sir, who will interview me. Yeah, so so Ben, uh, the, the, your your favorite thing about Sundance was the only thing that you did. <laughs> the only reason I went to Sundance <laughs> was uh, uh, strap in because it'll make you feel old. Uh, this year is the 20th anniversary of the Blair Witch Project premiering at the Sundance Film Festival. It was in 1999. That was the year I moved to Los Angeles. That was like two or three years before I met you, I think. And uh, yeah, so they had a panel. They had a midnight screening that... If it wasn't sold out, it was really packed. It might have been sold out. Um, Everything sells out. I'm sure it was sold out. And uh, all of us uh, who worked on the film were there. Unfortunately, none of the actors were there. Uh, Mike Williams and his wife were co-directing a play in New York City that opened, I believe, that night. And they couldn't make it. And Josh got snowed in uh, in London and wasn't able to. Like, he had a flight booked and he wasn't able to be there. And I think Heather does not want to attend Blair Witch-related events anymore. So okay. she was not on the on the menu. What about any other cast members? Well, I mean, really, the, they're those the, are the three of the people. They're, think the, about, but. they're really most of the movie is the three of them. And <laughs> the rest of the people are sort of like, you know, the townies they they encounter or whatever. You know, there's a few other, you know, the woman who played Mary Brown, who's one of their longer interviews, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But she was probably in her 70s when we made the movie in 1997. So mm. uh, and uh, John Maynard didn't make it out. John Maynard is not in the Blair Witch Project. Oh, that's right. He's in one of the uh, he's in one of the things that you directed. He's, he's in the Burkittsville the Seven. Burkittsville Seven. Which, which, which Part, were, pardon me. Excuse that was me. a Showtime special that I made promoting. He was the Blair so Witch good. Project. I just imagined that he was actually in the. John, movie one of my oldest friends. He'll be very flattered that you remembered him. Of course, I remembered him. John's the best. Uh, ben, tell me about this panel. Tell me about. Uh, tell me about your your whole trip. Because I, ordinarily, uh, Alicia, my wife, and I would love to uh, go to Sundance and spend a few days, and we've done that many times. You know, we many. We've probably been to Sundance five times, and the first time was in 1999 when the Blair Witch Project was picked up. We literally, uh, we had just arrived in L.A. the day that it was picked up, basically, but we didn't know that, and we were at. It's not. It's not there anymore. But there was a. Uh, I want to say it was a Carl's Jr. that was on Ventura Boulevard near Sepulveda Boulevard. We were there and it was the day we had arrived in LA and we're sitting there and this hasn't happened since, but some dude was leaving and he was like, Hey, you want my newspaper? And I flipped and I was like, sure thing. Wow. Angelinos are friendly. They aren't. And, and I flipped over the paper and it was like the style section or whatever. And it was a picture of my Blair Witch buddies and it said artisan catches a witch after midnight or something was the headline. And it was a picture of the guys who I'd seen a week ago, right before we left Orlando, Florida, to drive to L.A. And we literally had just driven across the country. I had been sick the whole way. We called up Neil Fredericks, who you knew, uh, unfortunately, who passed away in 2004 on a a set. The director of photography of the Blair Witch. Yeah, he was the DP on Blair Witch, and he was, you know, a really, really close friend to both of us. And uh, Alicia hadn't met him yet. He hopped into her car and we drove 12 hours to Park City, Utah from uh, from Los Angeles and kind of just caught the wave. And it was just pure excitement the whole time we were there. We had we had Blair, we had Blair Witch fleece hats that had the stick man on them and people would offer me money for them on the streets. And it was like, no, man, because I'm so cool. I came up with the stick man. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and it was it was pretty badass. So, you know, then, uh, you know, Blair Witch 2 comes out rather humbling. You know, we all have, uh, you know, ups and downs in our careers over the over the, the course of time. And I think this is the first time that I can remember. I can't remember the last time 
that uh, both the co-directors, Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick, uh, plus the producers, Greg Hale, Robin Cowie, and Mike Manello and myself were all in the same room together. Like, I've seen all of those guys, and these all, we've all seen each other, but I don't know that we've all, like, been in the same room to talk about the same thing since then. And there were people at the screening, and this really makes me feel old, who were not alive when the first one came out in 1999. Was there anyone who was in the audience who said, I actually saw it here at Sundance 20 years ago? Nobody. I'm sure that there were a few. No one said that to me. The yeah. guy who was um, who who was hosting the screening on Sundance, like the guy who introduced the movie, he had I think he had seen it at Sundance 20 years earlier. So, Ben, uh, who do we have to thank for recording this? Yeah. Uh, my friend Matt Blasey, who is, he runs the uh, Facebook page, like the official Blair Witch Project Facebook page. If you go there, he, he's the admin who will accept you. He runs a thing every year in Maryland called the Blair Witch Experience where he takes people. Hardcore Blair Witch fans. Yeah, and I don't think... Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think he charges any money for this. He just wow. does it every year. And and he just takes people to all the real locations that we were at, whether they exist or not. Like the house at the end, that, that thing fell over in like 2002. Nice. But he takes people to the giant vacant lot that used to be that house. And so they, they can, can take some selfies and uh, yeah. say I was there. But he, he hashtag Blair Witch. Hashtag <laughs> He standing even, in the corner. My favorite thing that that he's done is uh, in in the movie. Uh, if you've seen the movie, early on they go to these townies around Burkittsville and they and they interview them about the Blair Witch. And there were a bunch of plants, but Heather walked up to some woman who had like a one year old baby who was on her shoulder, and the baby kept putting her mouth her hand over her mom's mouth while she was talking and. What she was saying had nothing to do with the Blair Witch legend. It was just some crap she saw on Discovery Channel or something and somehow linked it to Blair Witch. And she comes across as very sincere and very real because she is a very real person. So Matt tracked them down. Oh, wow. The daughter who was like one year old in 1997. Obviously, she's in her like mid-20s now. And uh, and now he's like friends with them. <laughs> so Matt flew across the country from the East Coast uh, to to hang out with all of us. He hadn't met he'd met Ed a bunch of times because Ed lives in Maryland still. But he had the director. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the co-director of Blair Witch. But uh, he hadn't he hadn't I'd spoken to him on the phone a bunch of times, but he hadn't really met a bunch of us in person. So we all got to hang out. I had lunch with him. It was a blast. And then he was literally in the third row filming the whole Q&A on his phone. And that's the that's the video that's up. So uh, this first soundbite that we're going to hear, uh, you talk about uh, the expectations uh, of of the actors. Well, what I'm talking about really is sort of the method. When people construct a found footage movie, I find that a lot of times they try and script it like a regular movie and they try to control too many elements. And the thing that Ed and Dan did, the two co-directors, uh, co-writers, co-directors on Blair Witch, that to me to this day really stands out is they created an environment in which the actors were basically making a real documentary. So here's me yakking about that. Uh, I, I kind of have, have a thought that I, th I think is important, is that Ed and Dan created uh, a situation that was sort of like these actors were in a LARP, and they were filming themselves in a LARP, and then we were doing whatever we were doing, and they didn't know what was happening. So wh when I talk to people about it a lot of times, I'm like, it actually is a documentary. And like all documentaries, it's omitting one convenient thing, and in this case, it was that they knew it was us messing with them all along. And they're actors, and they're putting performance into it, and they're doing all their real work, but like, it, I think the authenticity from it comes from the fact that it does feel like a real documentary because they made it like you would make a real documentary. Yeah, we, I mean, it was, the way we did it was partly based on, uh, I went through survival school in the Army, 
and by then the Bible School and Army are kind of freaked out. So I'm like, let's just do that to the actors. <laughs> so what could go wrong? So by the end, like we weren't really letting them sleep that much, and we kind of fed them less and less. <laughs> so we were just kind of fucked with their heads. By the end, they were a little broken. <laughs> I, I told that story to somebody like the other day because they were asking how many, and they're like, "Well, weren't you concerned that you would hurt somebody?" And I was like. <laughs> yes. Well, what was the line you told them, Greg? It was like, we're, your comfort, what was it you said? You're, you're, yes, you're, we're concerned you're, for your safety, but we're not concerned for your comfort. So yeah, that was sort of the... Which actors love to hear. Yeah. <laughs> but during the casting process, we sort of like, you know, don't even apply. Yeah. Don't even come for an audition unless you're willing to, you know, stick it out in the woods for eight or nine days, right? But then we'd still have people come in like fully dressed and like nightgowns and stuff. Like, what are you... Did you not read the, the casting notice? So, but, um, but yeah, that's, I guess that's what they call now method, the method approach. So Ben, uh, it looks like we have another soundbite of you talking about uh, the number of people that were on set. And, uh, you know, uh, tell us about that. Well, when we were making the film, honestly, a lot of times it was just Ed, Dan, Greg, maybe Neil and myself. Um, but depending on what the gag was, depending on what we were doing in, in the woods to the actors, uh, we might increase the number of people. So like when they get when their tent gets shaken and they get chased out, there were like 15 of us because there were so many things working in that scene. Like you don't realize it, I don't think, but but there's a lot going on. And uh, so uh, here's a clip of me uh, explaining that to someone who was asking how many crew we had and uh, dropping as many F-bombs as I'm capable of doing because, hey, I'm standing on a stage at Sundance. How often do I get to do that? I might as well offend some people. In terms of, like, on set when they were shooting, it was just the actors, and then when they were getting fucked with, it was us fucking with them. So if it took 20 of us to fuck with them, then 20 of us were out there fucking with them. Sometimes it took a lot of people to fuck with them. Yeah, we had the fuck crew, and then we had a normal Oh, my virgin ears. I can't believe that I talk wow, like you're, that. Wow, you're filthy. You kiss your mother with you're that tongue. You're filthy. Anyway. <laughs> so, so, Ben, we have one last, we have one last clip from, uh, from the Q&A, and uh, it's about the scariest part of being out in the woods. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, because we really did it in the woods. I mean, like, it's, we're really in the woods, and the woods are freaking creepy at night. But, yeah, I'll, I'll go into more detail here in my clip where I discuss uh, spooky Maryland woods in Seneca State Park. <laughs> so, to me, one of the scariest nights was the first time we messed with them in their tent, and uh, they were their tent was in this like very very dense pine forest, and even if the moon was out, it was like black as ink. You could not see your hand in front of your face. So, uh, following uh, Greg's directions, we would all wear camouflage. And we had like little headlamps, and we'd walk out into the woods, and we put red gel on our headlamps, and then when we got closer, we'd turn them off. And uh, that particular night, I think I was in front, and we, we knew where the tent was because we told them where to put it, but I didn't realize where it was till it was like right here. Like I could touch it and it was like, oh shit, they're gonna hear us. And then, uh, it's hard to explain what happened that first night. Uh, it, 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 I, they were really aggressive. Yeah, yeah they, were, they were pretty hot. Yeah, like our, our directions were kind of like, I think just stay around the, you know, just take, point the camera out, but you know, just, it's, you know, it's us, so don't chase us, yeah. you're gonna see it. Yeah, we don't want to be seen in the but shot. But for some reason, Heather was like, let's go! And she chased me down this hill, and I was like, oh, I'm an idiot, and I was like, 
Ben, that sounds like that was an awesome, awesome Q&A. Uh, it, it was amazing. And it was, you know, completely worth, uh, you know, me uh, leaving my uh, my wife and uh, at the time eight month old baby for, you know, a couple. Well, basically 22 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was barely gone at all. Right, they well, didn't even notice. They were asleep the whole time. Well, well, Ben, uh, I think that just about wraps us up for uh, our first ever 2019 Sundance special, <laughs> one of four. So uh, the others now uh, are going to be following Hot on the Heels, where we talk about uh, similar stuff, but different stuff. And so uh, if you like this one at all, definitely come back. If you didn't like this one, well, it's going to be more of the same, but uh, maybe it'll be even better. <laughs> that you are you you drive a hard bargain uh so yeah uh yeah please check ch- come check out the next one and uh as always we wanted to thank uh alana cody for her amazing producing and also interviewing skills uh thank you Kay Zalatracci for the fantastic music and thank you ben katz your editing is awesome and so uh come back if you, if you can and hear part two of our sundance 2019 wrap-up specials This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.